Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, and welcome back to another episode. And if you're enjoying listening to the show, please, 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 please go to your podcast, listening, streaming, et cetera, app of choice and leave us a review. It really helps us better understand how to grow the show in a way that you would like us to. And it helps other entrepreneurs find out about us. So please go leave us a review. Today, I'm interviewing Kevin Lee. Kevin is the co-founder and chairman of the marketing firm Did It, which is a really great firm I've known for a while. Matter of fact, I applied to work and spoke with Kevin, I'm going to have to say, almost 20 years ago. He does not remember this. He and I have met numerous times since. Um, and he does not remember, but I remember. Kind of fun how the journey goes in this. He's also the CEO of the eMarketing Association. And he's the founder of Giving Forward, which is a cause marketing not-for-profit. And we're going to talk about cause marketing quite a bit in today's thing, because what Kevin does is he really just constantly creates these concepts and ideas that he spins up in ways that help people generate revenue for not-for-profit without just focusing on, hey, give us more money. He makes it fun. He get, you know, we'll get into the difference. He's also just... You got to read his column. Yeah, he's written for Clixy. He's written all over the place. Yeah, you know, marketing association where he dives into the various tactics and sort of evolving space of digital marketing and how to utilize that as part of growing your company. So no matter what, if you're looking to build a good company, following Kevin is an amazing thing. But more importantly, it's just a really giving and open guy. He, what he talks about is. A lot of fun. So, hey, let's go talk with Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've known you for quite a while. Matter of fact, you even interviewed me at one point, and I didn't get a job with Did It back in the early noughts. But even better is after my own company and success, we, you and I have been able to meet a few times and talk about some of the cool not for profit work you've been doing, along with agency life in general. So, I'm just Really grateful you came on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, AJ. It's always fun to catch up and even better when the podcast is being reported. <laughs> yes, it's not luck. We can talk anywhere we want. You have such a fascinating background, you know, and just as I was telling the audience, some of the things you've done, how you've built, did it. What I'm really curious to know is where do you see yourself as an entrepreneur these days? You know, the one thing that's been consistent throughout the years is that I'm sort of an inventor and marketing mad scientist, right? And so when things pop into my mind, they may pop in for a specific client and solving a problem that they have for a group of clients, or they may pop in for something that I think actually belongs to be a business, right? Either a for-profit business or a non-profit business. And so I have to sort of let those things percolate sometimes for a little while to, to decide whether that was just 
a wild and crazy idea that is not worth pursuing, or if it's worth pursuing, I'd have to decide, you know, should I try to spread myself any thinner? So that's really the trick is, you know, seeing which things belong under the did it umbrella, which things should be independent of did it. And uh, the one great thing about being in the agency business, and I would say for consulting or, or business services, it's the same way that you're used to sort of spreading yourself around different clients. And similarly, you can sort of spread yourself around different initiatives. It's all about prioritization and, and creating a choreography and a cadence that works. That is very, very true. But I still, as myself and then other, I think sometimes we do struggle with, I like the way how you put it, where you trying to figure out the cadence and where it goes within the structure. What do you go through to make sure that it's not just bright, shiny object, that there is value to kind of bring into your different capabilities? Yeah, sometimes I'll interview a bunch of folks, uh, trusted folks uh, around me, you know, either did it employees or uh, other entrepreneurs or business owners or clients. And that's sort of part of the percolation process where it sort of sits there and it, it evolves. Also compare, you know, the, the time and money investment. If it's something where an MVP can be spun up fairly inexpensively, and I, my gut is telling me that it's got significant potential, then, uh, then I'll be more likely to sort of say, you know, maybe I need a little less research and I'm willing to go, go with my gut. And, you know, part of that, the beauty of th that having a great agency with great people is that while I'm still very involved strategically with a bunch of clients, in particular the larger ones, you know, if I take a vacation, I don't have to worry. They know what they're doing. They can handle everything really well. And so from that perspective, if I'm sort of spending a bit of time going down a rabbit hole, figuring out whether some piece of technology or or even new service under did, the Didit umbrella uh, is worth investing in, I don't have to sort of worry that things won't get done. If you don't have that, it's, it's much, much more difficult. You really have to have a fantastic team supporting you to give you the flexibility to go down those rabbit holes and see how deep they are and then decide if there's something there. This kind of brings up a good question because as many of us search firm and now you're sort of moved into a full service, but also just the description of the difficult, while it is straightforward for you right now, that is the type of thing, building the team, the structure. You know, maybe we can kind of go into how that has evolved for you as the entrepreneur, how that skill set has changed over time for you. Because I always love talking to experienced person like yourself because they're like, oh yeah, we do this, we have a team, we have a structure. And it's like, Talking to a more junior, like, how do I do that? What's the first step? You know, where, who do I bug? So, how has that changed just over the past 10 years for you doing this? One thing one gets uh, an ever increasing respect for is the importance of human resources and the recruiting process. Pre entrepreneurship, when one is on the job hunter side, one sees HR as an impediment. Like, oh, those HR people. All I need to really do is talk to the senior C-level people and I'll make an impression on them. And, you know, I hate these HR people. They're just a roadblock to me getting what I want, which is, you know, your dream job. Of course, once you're an entrepreneur and running a business, you realize that the business is all about the people, right? And so having a, a good recruiting process in place and being uh, increasingly better at picking out the winners is key. But you also, at least in the agency business, you need to have a process by which you can hire junior people and bring them up through the organization. And we've tried and failed at a bunch of ways and can continue to evolve 
the way in which we do that. And that's changed within the last three years, and we're still looking for the sort of perfect new formula. But it used to be sort of we had official trainings, and then we went more with a mentorship model, which seemed to work really well. But now that we're hiring you know, more junior people, and there's an opportunity to have overall staff mixed as in-office and remote and hybrid, we're realizing that people learn more quickly in person. And so interestingly, even the, the candidates, for the most part, realize that as well, right? They realize that their careers can probably progress more quickly in an in-office environment. So they're actually looking for, you know, three days a week or potentially even more in the office because they know that not only will they learn more quickly there, but I think there's also an element of being visible. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to raises and, 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 uh, and promotions, right, it's more difficult to know exactly how much value a remote employee is delivering if they're green and, and new. It's much easier if they're sort of mid-level or higher. So that's something we're continuing to play with just from the perspective of growing and hiring. There's no perfect model. I think it's different for every company, depending on the corporate culture, depending on what subject matter experts you've got, and also depending on what percentage of your SMEs can also sort of pinch hit in other categories, right? Also that, particularly in the agency services and marketing services area, is you've got some specialists that there's only really one thing that they're excellent at. And then you've got folks that are much more uh, well-rounded and, and can sort of step in and, and help out in another area. Yeah, no, I mean, that is very true. I mean, my experience is seven plus years out of date since I sold, but yes, it is that kind of ongoing balance. You know, you'll have a system that works great for a couple of people, but you know, the people you think it's going to work with have no success. You know, it is that constant dance to adjust and not chase after that process because it can get crazy. So I like that. In kind of looking at how you're growing now that you're, yeah, you're the executive chairman of did it, you do keep involved with some clients, but you are looking more and more at the big picture. Is there anything you look to to help you grow as an entrepreneur, to help your understanding or your capabilities as an entrepreneur grow? Whenever I come across a biz dev opportunity where it's either in an industry category that I'm not fully uh, immersed in yet, or there's a senior level marketer or C-level executive that I feel is compatible with both agency. Uh, the agency did it, and in, in, in particular with me, if I, when I feel that, that I found that, that's super exciting because then I feel like I'm learning and growing while I'm teaching and helping. It's a really compatible arrangement. And, uh, you know, in the agency business, as you well know, there are some biz dev opportunities that you, you chase because you sort of feel like you need the revenue. And then there are others that you chase because you think it'll be valuable for you and the whole team because it's going to take you in new directions. It's going to allow you to have some wins, which are always a lot of fun, right? When you realize that philosophically a prospect is in growth mode or, you know, just overall uh, appreciates the, the help they're going to be receiving, that's just, that's a huge win all around, right? Because then the teams can get excited, then I can get excited. And so that's sort of how I, you know, I use the e-marketing association, for example, to have opportunities to chat with folks that I might not otherwise have an opportunity to talk to and, you know, overtly sell because I'm really more of the, hey, here's what we do. When you need us or your current agency screws up, give us a ring, you know. Things are so busy now, to some extent, we can cherry pick. 
we can turn stuff down if we don't think there's a, a good fit. So that's sort of how I'm thinking about it on an ongoing basis. But HR is, is really more the, the binding constraint on growth right now, I think, than clients. And for that reason, we have to be picky. That is interesting because, yeah, I mean, talent, it's been very interesting watching the growth of sort of employer-led you know, companies and companies that are trying to craft around the employees versus years ago where it was kind of like, yeah, you know, agency life, you'll get paid well, but you're going to work, you know, 90 plus hours. And that's if you're, you know, that's if you're slacking. It is kind of cool. We had um, the CEO and founder of We Are Rosie, which is not an agency yet that approach of building and embedding marketing teams within companies is really interesting. So it is, every time you hear someone saying agency life or agency structures are dead, then just a couple of years happen until you know that news kind of settles and agencies are back in you know obviously slightly different but still at the end of the day the same deliverable becomes popular so that's cool that you know you use the people you're meeting do you have any structure around that or is it something you just kind of open yourself up and let happen based on who comes in <laughs> Uh, I, I have, it's a, it's a combination of both at the moment. I am trying to add some more structure to it. I just recently hired an executive assistant, which I haven't had uh, for a while. It's just a part-time executive assistant that's a share, person shared with some other folks. And uh, we, we're literally kicking off this month to try to add some structure to that. So up until now, it's been more serendipitous. person I run into at a conference or a person I know I'm going to see at a conference or uh, certainly referrals, of, you can't control what comes in over the transom on those. And I think those tend to be good because I find that people who re refer us business are often former clients. And so they know our culture and they know our capabilities pretty well. And so it's almost, you know, pre everything is pre-vetted, right? Not only am I pre-vetted for the prospect, but the prospect is pre-vetted for me. <laughs> so, so, uh, that in the case of where I get that kind of um, referral, but in the case of the e-marketing association, when I do the podcasts there, it's really just, are these, you know, do these people have some knowledge? I think that they could impart simultaneously to me and to the e-marketing association audience. And so that, that tends to drive that particular um, decision-making process. But again, it's ad hoc at the moment, but I need to add some structure to that. So my executive assistant and I, Actually, next week, have a meeting specifically around adding structure to that, uh, determining whether I stay within certain categories, whether I rotate throughout categories, and really, you know, thinking through that process. So uh, stay tuned on that one. <laughs> no, I, I would be fascinated to hear because I think of myself as a geek in the space, but I know in the couple of conversations you and I have had, and not to go too far into geekdom, but like you geek out much heavier into some of the specifics that I think I've, you know, I now, I haven't kept my hands dirty, but I do remember, I mean, this is four or five years ago now, but it was like, you were breaking down some schemas and I was just like, <laughs> the guy still keeps his game on, which is fun. I mean, this is what we're doing is so straightforward yet. So, so different from how so many people think of how the work occurs or how engagement and attention goes. So, you know, it's kind of cool. All right. A little bit of flicker in the background here. Before going off on that, one thing I am really curious because 
Something I'm looking to model myself after is your efforts in the not-for-profit. I was very impressed when we have talked. I haven't quite built my level businesses, my new businesses after selling the last one, but my new ones up to the level it feels right. But like, I was very impressed in the type of not-for-profits you were both backing, both industry and truly, and then sort of cause-based, but then also the not-for-profits you were building. Was there sort of a time period that you felt you were capable or did it evolve? And then maybe dive a little bit into what the not-for-profits are doing. Sure. Well, you know, the as you may recall, uh, my first venture into sort of cause marketing was WeCare, which has got to be about 14 years ago that I started that. And that was cause marketing powered commerce as an idea. And, um, you know, we were about seven years into that and had generated over 8 million for nonprofits uh, by just using the affiliate networks to generate the revenue and then splitting the affiliate profits between the nonprofit that the ourselves and the nonprofit that the shopper had selected. And at that point, uh, Amazon asked us to do an A B split test to demonstrate that there was lift because they were extremely skeptical that people's behavior actually changed. And they really thought we were just a tax on the ecosystem. And so we didn't know either. So we ran the A-B split test and it showed uh, double digit lift in conversion rate and double digit lift in shopping cart size. And so uh, you can pretty much guess what happened then. They were inspired to terminate our agreement and they launched Smile. And, and from a karma perspective, I'm fine with that. I mean, they're at uh, $380 million generated with Smile. I cannot imagine having reached that level uh, in the you know interim six or seven years. Uh, since they launched Smile. So I think from a, a social impact perspective, that's not a bad outcome. Obviously, some of the employees that I had to lay off may disagree with my you know, karma level analysis of the situation. But I continued to be really passionate about cause marketing. And I thought I was going to relaunch WeCare or something either under that brand or, or a different brand when I had the idea of cause marketing powered content about four years ago. And so I tried to buy five different domains of defunct publishers, and I was unsuccessful at any of them, the most famous of which was, was Gawker. Uh, so if you Google my name and Gawker, you'll see the, the story of me becoming the stalking horse bidder there. So I didn't get it, you know, and, and uh, Brian Goldberg ended up wanting it, and there's a whole story around the auction, but that's uh, for a different day. But what was interesting is, you know, that was quite the journey, you know, and it, it forced me to really think through that business model. And the challenges that might be there. I wanted to hit the ground running. Uh, and when I couldn't buy anything, I decided to start giving forward uh, as a nonprofit that would be focused on cause marketing platforms. Because again, I'm sort of the marketing mad scientist. So I want to build platforms. So the journey there was okay, I have enough spare time. And, and all of this sort of, I guess, these philanthropic activities, while I could write checks directly to nonprofits, I felt like I could never write checks as large as a platform could write. And so that was why I was decided, even if I failed at a platform, the opportunity to succeed at the platform was so much bigger that, you know, while I do write the occasional check directly to a nonprofit, I sort of feel like, well, if I can build something that generates millions, you know, I'm not going to be at the millions. I would love to be at the millions direct, direct check writing uh, area, but, but I'm, I'm not going to get there. And so I started giving forward. I uh, rebuilt the cause marketing power content. Uh, technology, which had been based on third-party cookies, and so now it isn't anymore. And I launched Good Buzz uh, right before the pandemic hit, and of course I had to sort of focus on did it uh, keeping it on the rails during the pandemic. So the launch was was slower than I uh, than I wanted, but I met, was able to test both cause marketing powered content 
and cause marketing powered events with the idea that events are no longer restricted by venue size. And so once you go and you can do almost an infinitely large virtual event, you need not constrict it to a one event, one nonprofit. You can actually build a system like a Ticketmaster or Eventbrite and let the consumer pick which nonprofit they prefer. So we did a test with that, although it was fully sponsored by a sponsor, so there wasn't any ticket cost. It was a wild success, but reminded me just how much work events are. We didn't have enough employees for that. And we're about to try a street team event tomorrow uh, Tomorrow evening. Tomorrow is World Blood Donor Day. And we're about to try some a fun, a fun street team's methodology using my latest uh, technology, which is a clone of Omaze and Prizio, but run by a nonprofit, which is Sweeps for a Cause. So I continue to, you know, allocate a little bit of my time. I still put in the the 60 hours a week that the agency would typically expect. <laughs> and then there's a little bit of extra time for experimenting with with nonprofit stuff. So it's it's enough of a passion that I don't consider it work. And I think that would be true for both did it and giving forward is, you know, when you're doing stuff that feels so much fun that it doesn't feel like work, it's not as exasperating putting in the hours. I definitely agree. It's the fun part you know, the growing, and you kind of even mentioned earlier, sort of like the interesting clients, the clients who want something a little bit out of the box or want you to kind of play around with their stuff, you know, their data, that gets fun. And it's like, yeah, all of a sudden you're not working 50 billion hours, you're playing with stuff. And, you know, it's the other ones that are like, why isn't this two T's? Why is it one T? Why are you bidding three cents on this keyword versus 2.5. Yeah, it's like, oh God, please. I like that concept of the energy. Though you started you know, almost 14 years ago, it was this effort to kind of expand out. And I love that you were ahead of Amazon on smiles because I had looked at, we ended up just doing pro bono work on a consistent basis, but we saw that there were some things like even with like selling cookie data and all that, there was like, wow, there's all these additional monetizations for not-for-profits that tend to be run. They barely have any type of excess capability and you know, finding new ways of revenue. I think that's pretty cool. Though you said you kind of wanted to not do checks. You had done checks, but was that just something that kind of built up from where you were as sort of the CEO, the entrepreneur, yeah, in your own entrepreneurial journey, or is that something you had kind of seen earlier you wanted to get to so then you could do more? As an entrepreneur, did it just happen or, you know? It was primarily an outgrowth of being that marketing mad scientist uh, along the way. You know, I think it was probably just a confluence of events where right around the time where I could have started to write checks with a couple of extra zeros, I had to decide where do I write those checks. And then you start to have to worry about the efficiency of every cause. And you know, you can decide, well, is the formula that Charity Navigator uses, do I agree with that formula? Do I need a different formula? And sort of as I'm thinking that through, I'm really just thinking through the entire ecosystem, right? And as I'm thinking about the ecosystem, I started to, you know, learn more and more about cause marketing. And I just I sort of fell in love with cause marketing. I said, well, if we can figure out how to get marketing budgets, which are huge into the coffers of nonprofits, that's going to be way bigger than anything I can do personally, right? And sure, I will do the pro bono work and we'll, we'll have that other stuff that, that we do as did it. The more I looked into cost marketing, the more 
fascinated I was about creating the triple win, which was the business, the consumer, and the nonprofit all winning at the same time. And, and so, you know, we care was part of that. And I continue to sort of push in that direction. You know, when, you know, we're running a pure cash sweepstakes, it sweeps for a cause at the moment. But the hope is that the second half of the year, we start to get companies to donate in stuff for us to sweeps off in exchange for promotional consideration as prize donors. And in that case, it looks like a turnkey sweepstakes for them. They don't have to do anything. We take care of the rules. We take care of everything else. And it becomes a, a fundraising vehicle as well. So that, that was really the catalyst there, right, was this idea that I can do more good as an inventor than I can as a philanthropist. <laughs> Philanthropist inventor, yes. Coin a new thing for you. That is really cool because, yes, I'm sweepstakes, it's that when, when used wrongly, it's just spam. But I've seen and used for clients, especially when it's collaborative with multiple brands, you get that wonderful impact and just increase in awareness. That is really pretty cool because it would look pretty straightforward, you know, to a typical, ah, I like, I like, <laughs> very cool. <laughs> I think there's a lot of, oh, yeah, I can't wait to see it, please. You know, and I'll make sure, you know, when you guys are doing that, shoot it, I'll include it. So everyone, all of our listeners can check it out. You know, we'll put it in our socials and put it in the newsletter when you get your first one out. We'll include it. Yeah, well, Sweeps for a Cause is live now with the cash sweepstakes. And uh, we just haven't focused on recruitment of donated prizes because, you know, we're refining our conversion rates, we're refining our KPIs, uh, we're testing new strategies around getting the people in the door, you know, figuring out exactly how we collaborate with the nonprofits. The Fundraising Day New York happens to be in a few days uh, from when we're recording this. And it's, what's fascinating about most nonprofits is that the marketing teams and the fundraising teams are quite separate, typically, which is somewhat non-intuitive, right? Because you would be like, yeah, but the fundraising teams, they all go out there and they get the donations. And so then what is the marketing team doing? Well, they do overlap in a Venn diagram, but they're, they're surprisingly separate. Uh, particularly for those nonprofits who exclusively do sort of whale hunting style philanthropy, right? Where they look for the, the six-figure checks, the seven-figure checks, the bequests, right? It's a very different process than a typical marketing process for folks who might try to put you on an annuity-style uh, donation process. And then the marketing team, will obviously, is also looking to market around getting awareness out for the, 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 you know, the cause that is their mission. So it's surprisingly how siloed they are. And I sort of see opportunities to maybe use some of what, what we're doing under Giving Forward to sort of break down those silos within some of these nonprofits and getting, get the marketing team to sort of think through how they can collaborate more with the fundraising team and use us as a bridge for that. I would love to talk to you about that offline, but I think this is really because I've been, you know, both for the pro bono work and then as a board member of different not for profits that did do that whale hunting, just by doing email segmentation and doing small asks from your non engaged list, we were able to add 25% overall in donation in small donation base, which just gives you long term opportunity to engage further. So, yeah, I mean, this stuff is. It's so sad how lack of sophistication keeps a lot of not-for-profits just chasing whatever amount of, you know, what they can get for the next couple of days versus more strategic thinking in the space. So I think that's cool that you're building out a whole organization to help them do that it is really cool. Well, 
you have a successful now full service. You've done some nice acquisitions and going through direct marketing and adding other capabilities. You're very active in the not-for-profit space, building these capabilities. What does your long game look like as an entrepreneur? Is there like even bigger for you? <laughs> We've recently had, uh, you know, promoted up our SVP of client services to be the, the CEO. Uh, which allows me to continue to be the visionary in the biz dev engine. And, you know, he and I are actually talking about what that's going to look like and the, you know, the speed, the velocity at which we can get there. We really do want to get bigger and bigger. We, you know, we've been doing more and more work for private equity firms and the occasional VC funded entity. You know, it's a very different engagement in those instances because there's a mandate for change in particular under PE, when a company is either, you know, typically a majority purchase or, or sometimes an outright purchase, there's typically due diligence process that has identified, you know, room for growth, right? And so otherwise they wouldn't bother doing the transaction. And so there's an unusual mandate for change that is less likely to occur with a typical corporate client, right? Typical corporate client comes in, maybe they're feeling one particular pain point when they talk to me. They're like, oh, we think our PPC is not efficient. How much efficiency can you add to that? Or, oh, our SEO has been underinvested for many years. Can you fix that? And sure, you know, there's always opportunities to add a high single digit or, or you know, double digit, sometimes significant double digit efficiency to those in, in areas like you just, you know, mentioned for the, the the email marketing for nonprofits, right? Just by doing segmentation and treating your customers differently and all those kinds of things. Great. Those are all good, good wins, right? And they're incremental, right? What's what happens typically with something that's VC funded or PE funded with the PE funded organizations, typically they have already something that's succeeded maybe in spite of itself, right? <laughs> in spite of the fact that they're not using best practices in marketing uh, or, or integrating sales and marketing together. And uh, so when you have an opportunity to jump in the, at that point and deploy both strategy and tactics, it's really fun. So a lot of our, our growth, I think, over the next five years or so will be, you know, trying to do more in those areas where where we've got we're not just fixing a point solution. We won't turn away the point solution repair jobs because they often end up being the Trojan horse into the organization. And then we end up becoming closer and closer to the AOR. But it's more fun when we can go in and say, okay, here is a top to bottom prioritization of, of everything you could be doing. We're not 100% sure this is the perfect punch list, but we can find out fast, right? And then we can you know, do agile marketing. We, we fail fast, we fail forward, we double down, triple down, and quadruple down on the channels that are working. And we can think holistically, not just pure last click attribution, direct response KPIs, but really look at the extent to which other media and marketing touch points are stimulating curiosity for consumers and causing them potentially to end up in search uh, or in social. So that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to, you know, double or triple the company in the next five years, do it strategically and, and continue to grow out great team members as I do it. Uh, our alumni base after 26 years, as you can imagine, is all over the place, right? We've got quite the footprint of those alumni. And it's been, that's another rewarding thing about having run did it for 26 years is to have watched the careers of our alumni, right? So I'd love to continue to, to be a training ground for great people, keep the ones as long as we can and uh, have a lot of fun as we're doing it. Yeah. I mean, I only had for, you know, just about 13, but it is amazing seeing the kids who you were like, how the hell are you even going to be able to tie your shoes tomorrow? End up being CEOs of companies 10 plus years later. 
you know, one guy's company just went public that he started, the uh, Blade Company that goes back and forth between New York and you know the Hamptons. I was just like, you did what? Oh yeah, yeah. Got, a friend was into helicopters. I was like, uh, you know, it's there are many great things about doing it, but to you know, it's that moment when you sit there and you say, oh my god. This person has gone off and done amazing things that get so exciting about it. So as you look to kind of grow and you're looking to grow the company and your capabilities there as a company, are you looking like, okay, if we get here, I'm going to expand my not-for-profit or I'm going to go further into inventor territory? Do you plan that or think about that? How does that look for you? I do think about that. There's, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a few technologies percolating that don't really belong under did it that that are sort of not necessarily directly marketing related and in some cases you know again I, i'll just sort of let those things cook in the back of my mind right right at the moment we're so busy with with the launch of the giving forward platform and with a couple of n- new business wins uh, under did it that probably won't be able to invest as much time chasing those things but you can't you can't really plan the inventions, right, or, you know, or the epiphanies that you have, some of them sort of fly into your head while you're in the shower or while you're driving down the street or whatever. And, you know, I will send myself an email if, you know, pull over if I'm in the car. And if I'm in the shower, I'll just repeat it a few times, hoping that it sticks and it doesn't fly out of my head by the time, you know, I, I get out of the shower. But I just leave myself open to continued invention and improvement Right in areas that I feel like I know enough about that I can I can add value, and again sometimes it's client specific, right? Sometimes it's just a little mini epiphany for a specific client, and so I can't plan too far down the road, given that that's my modality, right? I can have sort of a certainly corporately I can have like one year, three year, or five year plan. You know, none of my longer term plans <laughs> matriculated, right? Because the the ecosystem around us moved so quickly and so unpredictably that, you know, it was really, everything becomes a living document that you have to look at again. When, when we launched Maestro as a bid management platform, we didn't realize Marin Software was going to go out and raise 101 million in venture capital and price so aggressively that they would put pressure on the entire market, go public, and then really struggle from a profitability perspective because they had used low prices there, you know, one of their primary selling tools which just put pressure on everybody who was in the bid management business, right? It, it caused us to have to layer services on, which made us look increasingly like an agency until people kept saying, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? And the only way to solve that was M&A, right? I didn't want to hire people until I had the clients ready to do it. And so, you know, the only way to get the expertise at the same time as the new business was to, to, to do M&A. And I think we're, we're probably, I don't know that we'll do any more M&A in the short to intermediate term. But we took that route to sort of solve that problem. You know, I'm not going to go too crazy down into a five-year plan because, you know, we're not going to be an NFT marketing agency, you know, uh, unless NFTs become so big that there should be an NFT marketing agency. <laughs> I've gotten some private equity folks asking if uh, yeah, it could be spun up. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's going to be. Yeah. By the time we spin it up, it will be dead. Or it will be three variations beyond it. And, you know, the short-term gains are all going to be captured by a few people overpaid and very little. Yeah, it's like, yes. So I don't miss that. Like, can we do this? It's like, yes, you can do that. But do you want to? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, shiny objects, right? They they look like they're high priority and high opportunity, but it's really sort of sussing out whether or not it really is high opportunity. And of course, looking at the competitive landscape and saying, well, is everyone chasing this shiny object? Now, then what are the odds that we actually manage to end up being the, the winner at the end of that race? It's almost more fun to invent stuff that is in a non-sexy area. So with indirect mail, you know, one of the little tests that I wanted to build is I, I had the tech team build a hyper-personalized QR code tracking platform for B2B and, and high-end B2C sales and marketing, because I sort of realized that, it, you know, in those categories where the Glen Gary leads are really, really valuable, the fact that a person scanned a QR code for a personalized offer in the direct mail piece was a hand raiser, which is very similar to search marketing hand raising, right? People don't search unless hey, I'm raising my hand, I'm interested in this right now. And so the idea that each QR code on each piece of mail would be uh, unique to that individual and fully disclosed on the piece of mail that they were getting you know, a personalized offer and they get to the landing page and we personalize that or not. But at least if that QR code is scanned, tagging the CRM and letting the, the sales team know, oh, by the way, this is a Glen Gary lead. You know, their cat may have puked behind them right after they scanned it and they didn't, con they didn't consummate the transaction or the price was too high or they didn't understand. But if you're going to call anybody, I would put this person at the top of your list. Make it not creepy, right? Because you don't want to say, hey, you scanned our QR code 10 minutes ago. Well, that's just creepy. But the ability to sort of use direct mail to generate leads on a little micro conversion, right, as opposed to the macro conversion alone, uh, was just really exciting to me. So we built the system and, and it works, right? So is it rocket science? No, it's not rocket science. Is it sexy? Not particularly, right? It's direct mail, <laughs> but it works. I mean, it's like retargeting, yeah, and then lookalike audience development and all that. It's all incremental. It's an audience that is, you're moving from that fictional 1% conversion, when in reality, it's probably a smaller fraction, you know, to maybe twice, three times. And it's the focus of your resources that kind of get you like, okay, now we're a little bit more focused on what's going to lead to that mode. So therefore that much more efficient. I mean, it makes complete logical sense. Dang. Okay. All right. We're <laughs> just going to have you sit there and yeah. You know. And I know you do this on the marketing. So everyone listening, really, if you do geek out in marketing or you want to kind of you know, understand concepts and stuff, you do have to listen to Kevin on the market because it is. And then on other interviews, he does. He really, this is kind of the fun of talking to him. It's like, oh, <laughs> and that, oh, and that, or use this, which is, I think, you know, going a little bit meta is the fun of these things because combinations or utilization of these tools are still even 20 plus years into it is still pretty young of how to make things work. Some of the AI stuff is kind of like overly complex, but dang cool. You know, when you can kind of get some combinations working, you're like, uh, that was two weeks work of work that just took me a week to figure out the process. And now an hour, what? Everyone will have links to this. So actually one last question, and then I would love if you can share how the audience can come, you know, find out about your different not-for-profits, dated.com, obviously. What do you enjoy the most about being an entrepreneur? Well, certainly controlling one's own destiny. 
is probably the best or the illusion that we control our own destiny because <laughs> we don't really fully control our own destiny, but we at least control the decisions that that bring us down the pathways, right? And and so entrepreneurship is about that. You know, uh, clearly for me, uh, being able to be in a situation where if I look in my marketing toolbox or my you know business toolbox and there's a tool missing, the idea that I can invent that tool, right, is just that's super fun. That makes it really fun to get up in the morning, knowing that I know how to use all the tools in the toolbox, but if I reach for one and it's not there, I could probably build it, right? If I'm thinking that tool is important and I don't have it in my toolbox, there might be somebody else thinking the same thing. And that's part of why I have a list of, of you know, basically tools and or problems that need solving that I think about, right? Is this doable by me or is this going to be doable by somebody else? And so that's entrepreneurship for me, right? It's the, the ability to sort of choose where to point your mental energies, right? And where to deploy them. Very cool. Thank you. So where can Beyond Did It, we'll have your LinkedIn profile. We'll have you talk about you know, some not-for-profits where they find more information about them and how to engage? Sure. Yeah, no, they're all in my LinkedIn profile, which is, uh, you know, various ventures is my, is the, the ending to my, my LinkedIn. You'll see if you look me up on LinkedIn. And so you can get to Giving Forward from there. You can get to the Marketing Association from there. You can get to Did It from there. And, you know, luckily I have, I have good domains for everything. So givingforward.org <laughs> is the nonprofit. And, uh, you know, I thought it was sort of a, a fun meta extension from giving back and paying forward, combining together to giving forward. And there's several brands underneath that. There's goodbuzz.org and there's sweepsforcause.org. But you can get to them from givingforward.org. And the eMarketing Association is uh, easy to reach as well. And that's where I put my podcasts. So we'll have to flip the script at some point. I'll I'll interview you and uh, we'll do an EMA podcast for that. I think as a marketer, you know, I sit there very high picture, like, do you have structure? You know, these days, it's like my conversations nowadays are all the businesses that like, oh, we need structure to this. It's like, oh, yes, please, please. <laughs> Let's say, okay, we'll talk about that. But no, I thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk with you soon, Kevin. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.